0: God, we are so looking forward to this message that you've laid, you've laid on Dave's heart. Um, Lord, thank you for um, just all the hours that he's put in, um, just preparing for this message. Um, God, we, we know that your word tells us that, that the Bible is alive and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, we believe that the authority is in the word, it's not in the messenger. Um, so Lord, we place your word at the center um, uh, of what you're going to do over the next couple of minutes. So God, give us open hearts, give us open minds, and Lord, speak through Dave. Lord, give him the words to say, give him strength, and give him unction in your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Chris. I was a little worried he was going to give the sermon there for a minute. Um but thank you for giving me the opportunity. I'm really excited for this opportunity to share with you something that I've been studying for really the last six months or so. Um, today we are going to talk about the Feasts of Israel. Uh, yes, I have chosen my one opportunity to give a sermon to talk about an obscure and exoteric set of rituals buried in forgotten passages of the Old Testament. So, so perhaps this will be my one and only opportunity, but, but we'll see... Uh, by the end of the day. It actually, gets, it actually gets worse. It's not just that. I'm actually starting a 10-part series today, but I'm just going to give you part one of the 10-part series. The problem is that the other nine parts are not on the preaching calendar. So um, you will have to do the other nine parts on your own. And, and that is really my hope today. My hope is that as we dive into this, and, and it, is, it is deep, but in some ways, we are just going to scratch the surface, and there's so much further that you could take this. My hope is that I excite you about uh, God's Word, especially the Old Testament, that you see that all of God's Word is for your benefit, and that you see that God was sovereign over all of human history, and that that energizes you to dig for the riches uh, buried in Scripture. I was really encouraged last week um, uh, when Chris said that he wanted us to get out of the kiddie pool and dive into the ocean of Scripture. And so I hope we just, we just touch on that this morning. Um, on the plus side, at least, this is, uh, this is a passage or a sermon that fits nicely with our study of John. Uh, we've been going through the book of John for a year and a half or so, and most of what we're going to talk about today does connect with the Passion Week of Christ. So there is a, a nice linkage there. Um, but yes, I hope you do uh, find this, this uh, material as encouraging to your faith. And as exciting, gives you as much confidence as it has in God's providence as it has to me. Okay, so enough with the intro. Uh, I know that Chris canceled the second service so that I could go for three hours, but um, I'm going to try to keep it a little bit shorter than that. Uh, My thesis today is that the feasts of Israel were appointed by God with supernatural precision, supernatural precision to foreshadow the entire arc of redemptive history, namely Christ's first coming, the founding of the church, and ultimately Christ's second coming and the return of Israel to him. That's a long statement, but that is what I believe the feasts are doing. That is what what I believe they are foreshadowing. This may sound strange um, at at first glance. Obviously, the feasts, when God instituted them, they had immediate importance for the Israelites. So it's not as though they were just foreshadow. They had reason and importance for the Israelites at the time. They reminded the Israelites of God's faithfulness to them, and we'll look at that today. But they didn't just do that. They also looked forward to a future fuller fulfillment of these feasts. Before you think I'm uh, over-interpreting symbols or picking up uh, too much in Scripture that I should, I just want to remind us all that there are a number of uh, symbols in the Old Testament that were picked up into fuller fulfillment in the New, and uh, Here's a, here's a handful of them. So we all know the story of Jonah and the fish, and most of us probably know that Jesus himself uh, compared himself to Jonah and the fish. He said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man would uh, die for, for three days and three nights. Uh, Jesus also compared himself to a strange story in Numbers 21.8, where uh, the Israelites have uh, complained and God sends venomous snakes to uh, to bite them and many of them die. And Moses actually saves the people by, by creating a bronze snake and putting it on a pole. And it's such a strange symbol for the Old Testament. But Jesus, uh, in one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, in John 3, reminds the, uh, the people that he's speaking to that that was actually a symbol of him, that just as the snake was lifted up, he would be lifted up. Similarly, um, we don't, we don't really get much of a connection between uh, marriage and what God's ultimate plan for it is in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, Paul tells us that marriage was actually created for Christ and the church. It's remarkable symbolism that comes to fulfillment. This may, you may find this interesting, that the holy of holies is actually a replica of something in heaven, that the dimensions described in Exodus 20, uh, 25, uh, Hebrews 9 tells us that that's actually a replica of something that's in heaven. So again, symbolism, finding greater fulfillment in something else. There are many more of these examples. Obviously, all the sacrifices in the Bible uh, point to Christ's sacrifice, as does New Testament communion. So we could go on and on about that. I just want to lay the foundation to say it is not uncommon to find symbols in the Old Testament finding greater fulfillment in the New. Um, And Paul picked up on this as well. Not only did Paul pick up on communion, baptism, and marriage, but he said this about the feasts. He said, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul saw something in these feasts that he saw substance in Christ in, and that's what we're going to dig into today. So with that in mind, uh, let's, let's jump to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. We're going to do a number of, uh, this is a topical study, so we're going to be in a number of different passages. If you can follow along, that's great. If you can jot down the verses, that may be even better, so you can uh, you know, do this on your own. Leviticus 23, I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm just going to skip through a number of verses. The point of this is to just point out uh, when these feasts were held, when God said to hold these specific feasts. In verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. You shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest on the day after the Sabbath when the priest shall wave it. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. this is the Feast of Weeks he's describing. Verse 24, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. And on the fifteenth day of this seventh month And for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. So that was just a a quick run-through of the dates, the time when those Israelites were supposed to hold these seven feasts. This seems like an entirely mundane passage. Um, Most of us probably have found no application in our lives for this passage to this day. But it is actually a stunning foretelling of God's plan of redemption and consummation. And as I got deeper and deeper into this, the precise details just absolutely blew my mind. We'll touch on a couple of them today, but again, I encourage you to take this study further. One clue, just to start us off with uh, these feasts, one clue is that the word is not actually feasts. You would think that the word in here for feast would be something related to food or a festival. But the word actually is moedim, which means the appointed time. And that is what God is calling these when he says the Israelites. Every time you see the word feast, it means the appointed times of the Lord. These feasts are also called mikra in the Old Testament, and that means rehearsal. So just think about that. God is calling them appointed times and rehearsals, as he tells these Israelites to celebrate these days. And while these feasts were certainly more than a meal, they were not less than a meal. They were celebrations. They were tangible reminders of God's past faithfulness, and they were uh, reminders of God's uh, future promises to Israel. Uh, One thing that, that we miss out on oftentimes is is the tangibility of our faith. We, we live in a sanitized and cerebral and Wi-Fi culture, and, and so we, we don't feel the tangibility, we don't feel the spirit realm the way these Israelites did sometimes. You think about the sacrifices that they made, the blood that was everywhere, that was such a tangible reminder of their sin. We don't experience that kind of tangibility today. Um, think of circumcision, that was a tangible reminder, at least to the, the males every day, uh, that, that they were God's people. The Ark of the Covenant was a tangible reminder of God's presence. He didn't live in the box, but it, was a, but it was, again, a reminder that God was with them. And so were these feasts. They were tangible reminders of God's faithfulness. And, and I think we miss out on that sometimes. We have communion. That's a very short, quick symbol that we do. And, and we may benefit by thinking deeper and maybe even tangibly experiencing some of these things. So the Feasts of Israel are still practiced today. Um, they have very detailed rituals uh, some, of, some of which uh, were prescribed in the Old Testament, and much of which has been built up as custom over time um, by the Jewish people. But they are still all celebrated today, all seven of them. And, in addition, there are some additional ones they celebrate too. Today we are going to focus on the three spring feasts and the one summer feast. We are not going to focus on the three fall feasts, but that's the way that the calendar sat. There were three spring feasts in a very short period of time, Then there was a seven-week period, and then there was one summer feast, and then there were three more feasts in a very short time in the fall. We're going to focus on the spring and the summer. The first of these, the first of these is Passover, and we all know Passover is probably the the best-known feast uh, of them all, and, and we all recognize the Passover. That was the day that God passed over the houses of the Israelites if they had painted the blood of the lamb on their doorpost and instead he struck down the, first child, the firstborn uh, males of, of Egypt. And that was the night before the Israelites were able to leave Exodus, to leave their slavery. So this is probably the most, most commonly heard and, and most understood uh, festival of the Israelites and it is the first one on their calendar. The feast of Passover is celebrated 14 days after the first full moon of spring. And in Hebrew, the month is called Nisan, and, and just as an aside, the Hebrew calendar is different than ours. They have what's called a lunar solar calendar, meaning their calendar is based on the cycles of the moon, and that's different than our calendar. So the, the day falls on a different calendar day for us every year, but for them, it's always the 14th of Nisan is the Passover. Um, it is the most known feast, obviously, and it, for, and it foreshadows Christ, and everyone has heard Jesus is the Passover lamb, so this one is not, a, not hard to make the connection. But there's so much more uh, to this feast. And so I just want to point out a couple of, a couple of uh, you know, things that they had to do at this feast. This is described in Exodus 12, Leviticus 23, and Deuteronomy 16. There's even more than, than what I'm highlighting here, but these are some important connections that, will, that you can probably make already. They were to find a spotless lamb on the 10th of Nisan. They were to live with that lamb for four days in their house, inspect it make sure that it was in fact spotless. Later after the temple was built, they were to take that lamb to the priest and, make, and the priest were to, was to inspect it and make sure that it was spotless. Then on the 14th of Nisan, they had to publicly sacrifice that lamb. The whole community did. Every family had to sacrifice their own lamb. Then they had to paint the door, paint the blood of that lamb on their doorpost. And, and literally in painting it, they were to put a bucket at their doorstep, dip the bucket Uh, dip their brush in the blood of the lamb, and make a cross motion as they painted the head of the door and the post of the door. Think about that symbolism. Each person was to partake of the lamb. They had to eat the entire lamb that night. They were not allowed to leave anything left over for the morning, and they had to have a lamb that was big enough to satisfy everyone's appetite. That was one of the regulations. They were to eat the lamb in haste very quickly just as they had to leave uh, Egypt in haste. And this is a very strange command, but they were, they were to ensure that no bone of the, of the lamb was broken. It's just a, just a very odd sentence in the Old Testament. What on earth? Why would God command that? And there's nothing in the Old Testament that says why. But no bone was to be broken of the lamb. Additional symbolism built up over time. Uh, the, there was something called the Ephikomen that Jewish tradition... Uh, Uh, carried on uh, shortly after the time of Christ. And this is just just a strange thing that I I wanted to point out. They took three loaves of bread. The middle loaf was called the Ephikamen. They struck that loaf. Then they broke the loaf in half. Then they wrapped that loaf in a cloth, and they hid it in the house. Then they went through uh, some additional portions of their seder, and then children went out to go find that loaf. And when a child found the loaf and and unwrapped it, they received a, a prize. I'll just leave that with you to think about the symbolism that the Jewish people are practicing to this day. And that's not even in Scripture. That's just custom. All right, so that's the Passover. Let's jump into the, um, the two other spring feasts, and then we'll tie them together. In Deuteronomy 16, 3, God says, Do not eat the Passover with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. Because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. So this feast officially began on the 15th of Nisan, the day after Passover, but they kind of actually started it on Passover, because you can see in this passage it says to not eat the Passover with bread made with yeast. And it carried on for seven days. And as you saw in this passage, it was so that they would remember the haste with which they had to leave um, Egypt. When, God, when uh, God struck down the firstborn and the Pharaoh let them go, uh, they had to leave in haste, so they did not even have time to leaven their bread and let it rise. That's my daughter, by the way. <laughs> in, uh so the, it's also interesting that this bread is called the bread of affliction or the bread of misery in this passage. to so commemorate their time of affliction um, in slavery. But over time, this bread of affliction begin to gain additional meaning. Um, the, the, in Jewish writings, it began to be called, uh, con- uh, connotated or connected with sin. This uh, leavened bread was connected with pride. Leaven was connected with false teaching. And we get some of that. You've probably, that, you may, that may ring a bell for you in the New Testament when in Matthew 16, Jesus warns us to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Or in Galatians, Paul warns us to beware the leaven of the false teachers. Or in 1 Corinthians, Paul warns us of pride as leaven that leavens the whole lump. So leaven wasn't just something that um, connotated uh, affliction or misery. It was also something that reminded them of sin, false teaching, and pride. So if that's what leaven meant, then unleavened bread would mean uh, oh, Sorry, leaven would mean comfort, pride, sin, and false teaching. Then unleavened bread would mean affliction, purity, truth, and holiness. And so that's what unleavened bread came to mean to the Jews over time. The last of the spring feasts, in Leviticus 23, we read, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheath of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your Lord. And uh, and this feast was called the Feast of first fruits, as you may have seen in the passage, the first grain that they harvest. What they were to do is they were to take the, to the priest a sheaf of Omer, and the uh, or an omer of the first crop, and the and the priest would wave it north, south, east, and west. And what they were doing there was they were dedicating the entire harvest to the Lord. By doing that, they were acknowledging that God is the provider of the harvest, and they were dedicating it, dedicating it to Him. There is debate about the proper day of the feast of first fruits. Even at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees debated. When the, fir- when the feast should be celebrated, because all it says in that passage is the day after the Sabbath. And it turns out after the day after Passover is also a high holy day, which is also considered a Sabbath. So the debate was, do we celebrate the Feast of Firstfruits after that high holy day after Sabbath, or do we celebrate the Feast of first fruits after the weekly Sabbath, which was obviously every Saturday? And so this is the debate that went back and forth, and, and to this day there is still the debate, because the Scripture is not clear. Um, I believe it was actually held after, it should have been held after the weekly Sabbath, and you'll see why in just a moment. So we've gone through the the three spring feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits. Now let's see their fulfillment in Christ. On the 10th of Nisan, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. We call this Palm Sunday, it was probably actually a Saturday, but we call it Palm Sunday. Then Jesus spent four days at the temple. And what was the temple? The temple was God's house. He spent four days in God's house proclaiming to the people the good news, and debating with the Pharisees, and being inspected, and they found no fault in him. Then after four days in Jerusalem, he is crucified on the 14th, which is the Passover. And as you remember from the New Testament, curiously, no bone was broken. While the two uh, thieves on either side of him had their legs broken in order to uh, speed up the crucifixion process, Jesus was already found dead, and so they, they pierced him in the side, but they did not break any bones on him. That day, Jesus became sin for us, right? He took all leaven from the world. He bore that leaven, and he took it out of the world. At least he took it out of the world for all believers. Just as the Jews were to take all the leaven out of their house and no leaven was to be found and they were to eat unleavened bread, Jesus took the leaven out of the world when he died and bore the sins of the world. Just as in the Old Testament they had to partake of the lamb in order, to be, uh, in order for the Passover, the angel or the Lord to pass over them, we all must partake of the sacrifice of the lamb. That is the only deliverance that we have from slavery. And then, as we all know, Jesus rose on the Sabbath that follows that Passover on the 17th of Nisan. So not only did Jesus fulfill the symbolism in the Old Testament, remarkable symbolism, but he fulfilled it on the exact days that were prescribed in the Old Testament. It's just this, Even now, it's just this gave me chills to, to realize this, that God 1,400 years in advance was proclaiming the sacrifice of Christ, and he was in control of all of it. 1,400 years. America has been a country for 250 years. 1,400 years. Think about how long that was that they lived with this promise, and they didn't even know it. Our God is omnipotent. He's omnipowerful. He is in control. He is sovereign, and He is provident, and He loves you, and to His name belongs all praise. Praise. This is not just my speculation, Um, just to point out that Paul himself picked up on all of this in the feast. Check out 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven. See if you can catch the feast in what Paul is saying here. You'll read these verses in a new way. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then in in, uh, that same book, in chapter 15, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Remember, Jesus rose from the dead on the feast of first fruits, for as by a man came death... as." For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So there's so much more that we could say about these, about these three feasts alone, um, Many draw parallels to our justification, sanctification, and glorification. There's all sorts of other ideas that you can draw from these, but, but we just don't have time to dig further in the spring feast. But with our remaining time, I do want to do touch on one more feast, and that was the summer feast. This feast was called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Shavuot. In Leviticus 23... God says to count 50 days from the Feast of Firstfruits. So remember the spring feast, the last one is Firstfruits. God says to count 50 days from the Feast of Firstfruits and then present an offering that includes two loaves of leavened bread to the priest. It's the only only, uh, sacrifice of leavened bread that we see. This is a feast that all Jews had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. There were actually three feasts every year that every Jewish male had to appear in Jerusalem. It was the Passover, the feast, of, um, the feast of Weeks, and then the Day of Atonement, or the Feast of Booths. So this, this feast happened during the summer harvest, <clears throat> and there's not much rationale given in the Old Testament as to why they are to celebrate the feast on this day. It's very interesting that God says to count off seven weeks, or seven Sabbaths, and then to hold this Feast of Shavuot. But Jewish tradition was that this was the day that God gave the law to the, old, to the Israelites, and if you actually look in Exodus 19, um, after they leave Egypt, in uh, Exodus 19 and 20, if you count the days, you, you actually get 50 days from the day that the Israelites left Egypt to the day that they get to Mount Sinai and that Moses goes up to receive the law on Mount Sinai. So that's a curious connection. <clears throat> and, uh, and this feast was to celebrate at least the, the end of the spring harvest, or the, it was the last of the harvest came in at this time and it was the wheat harvest. So they at least knew that was the connection. But it was traditional that it was also the day that the law was given. And so I'm gonna go on a, a short rabbit trail of an interesting story in the Old Testament, one that, one that we, we all know about the law being given, but, uh, but I wanna remind you of something else that happened when the law was given. In Exodus, so in Exodus 20, uh, Moses goes up on the mountain and he receives the 10 Commandments. And then in, between Exodus 20 and 31, God gives Moses a bunch of other laws. Then in Exodus 32, Moses comes down from the mountain, and this is what happens. It says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And then Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is, on the side, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. That's so strange. And the sons of Levi did this according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men died. So that's a strange story that happens when the law is given. So I I bring that up to point out just a couple of things. When the law is given, the Israelites are full of sin or full of leaven, right? The day that the law is given, 3,000 Israelites die. This is the same day that God later ordains the Feast of Weeks. And finally, um, this isn't in the passage, but, but just to note, most or many Jewish scholars believe that the day the law was given was the day that the nation of Israel was established. See, the connection they make when the law was given is when Israel became a nation. All right, so just remember those four very interesting facts. And Now we'll jump to, let's fast forward, 1400 years. Jesus has died and risen from the dead, and we are now in the book of Acts. In chapter 2, we read this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all together in one place. Pentecost, we all that word means 50, and that is the same Greek word to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. So this is the exact same day. The Feast of Weeks is the Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Remember I said every Jewish male had to go to Jerusalem on the Feast of Weeks. That is why there are men from, with every tongue in Jerusalem at this time, because they are required to do that to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language." So this is a recounting of the first Pentecost after Jesus rose from the dead, the first Feast of Weeks after Jesus rose from the dead. And what do we find? We find this is when the Holy Spirit comes down and first indwells the believers. And they speak in tongues to all of the Jewish men from around the world that have come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. So once again, we see another Old Testament feast finding greater fulfillment in the New Testament. The symbolism is so rich. The precision is remarkable. But it gets even crazier. Some people mock that they are speaking in tongues. And Peter steps up, and he gives the first church sermon in Acts 2, complete with a good Baptist altar call. In verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Remember what I just said a few moments ago? 1400 years earlier when the law was given and the Israelites were full of sin and leaven, 3000 Israelites died at the establishment of the nation of Israel. Fast forward 1400 years, the Holy Spirit is given on the exact same day to establish the church and 3000 souls are saved. This is beyond coincidence. This is God telling us that he had this planned in ages past. And that he was bringing it to come to pass. So we've seen the three spring feasts. We've seen the feast of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And we've seen that those all point directly to Christ's first coming and the sacrifice that he made for us. We've also seen the summer feast, the feast of uh, weeks. And we've seen that that clearly, unambiguously points to the founding of the church. And so we know that God not only is omnipotent and omnipowerful, but we know that Jesus is the Messiah, and we know that the church is his body. What of the fall feasts? There are three more feasts that we don't have time to discuss today. I'm going to leave that to your study, but many scholars believe that those three feasts point to the second coming of Christ, and I think there are some some very compelling reasons to believe that. So in conclusion... This is just a remarkable connection that we can see in Scripture, but it requires you to dive deep, and this is my my hope for you in the upcoming year. In what ways do you need to be reminded of God's sovereignty today? He knows the hairs on your head. He knows every detail about your life, past, present, and future. And He loves you as a perfect father, His child. And most glorious of all, He has made a way for you to be with Him forever. So worship Him, give your life to Him, and run to Him for healing. I hope you can see the Bible with new eyes and a new passion in 2020, especially the Old Testament and especially passages that seem irrelevant. Every word is written for your benefit. Maybe the next step for you is to take a topic like the feasts or atonement or the prophecies of Daniel and to dive deeper in 2020. Maybe the next step for you is to take, write down one insight every day from Scripture. Or maybe the next step for you is to just begin reading it. Whatever it is for you, I encourage you to take the next step. I promise God's word will not return void. It's the end of the year, and so it's time to close the page on another chapter in life and to open a new one. What will you make of it? Let's pray. Father, I just sit in awe of your sovereignty and also your providence that you made a way for us to be with you and that you made it so clear. Um, I sit in awe of the fact that you have given us proof in your scripture that it is of supernatural origin. This could not have happened by chance. Help us to feel that. Help us to help our hearts to recognize that and to love your word for what it is. Give us the passion to spend time with it and to share it with our friends. Um, Help us take the next step, whatever that means, in 2020 to uh, to come closer to you and to dive into your word, to discover its riches. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen.